That is the music of Sarah Harmer, a Juno Award-winning singer-songwriter from Ontario, Canada. Besides being great, why am I playing her music? Because in 2006, she gave a benefit concert to raise a portion of $343,000 needed to save a big oak tree, along with another band called Obiju. Very cool, and I would definitely go to that concert. The money was required to redesign a highway so the powers that be wouldn't plow the tree down to make room for more cars. The concert was part of a larger fundraising campaign led by members of Oakville, Ontario. But how did it come to this? It turns out this beloved tree faced numerous existential threats over the course of its 200 plus years, surviving each one if only to be saved again by future generations. I talked with several guests, including local tree experts John McNeil and Pete Williams, Oakville Town Councilor Alan Elgar, and Sarah Harmer herself to find out where this tree gets its nine lives. Is it worth $343,000 to save a single tree? I hope to answer this as we learn the enduring story of the Bronte Oak. I'm Doug Still, and this is this old tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree The Bronte Oak is a massive oak tree that stands in a long, grassy island within the busy Bronte Road in Oakville. The important Halton Regional Office Complex exists across the street, while the other side leads down into a natural area that holds Bronte Creek. Four lanes veer around the tree, two on each side, creating an eye shape with the tree in the middle of a large mulch bed like the pupil within an iris. Indeed, it sees everything coming and going into Oakville, as it has for at least two centuries. Depending on who you ask, The tree is either about 200 years old, or as many as 375 years old. It dates back to the pre-European settlement, when the lands were the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat and the Haudenosaunee, and now is treaty land of the Mississaugas of the First Credit Nation. The tree stands 20 meters tall, with an impressive 25-meter spread. That's 65 and 82 feet to us Americans— and a 60-inch diameter trunk that demands your attention. It is a stunning sight and comforting to those who know that its presence might easily have been denied. Few people know the history of the Bronte Oak better than John McNeil, the longtime city forester of Oakville. He is a professional colleague and friend of mine and is now a consulting arborist for McNeil Urban Forestry. He and this special tree have been through the trenches together. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Doug. I'm glad to be here. We've known each other, I think, for about 20 years. We served on the executive board for Society of Municipal Arborists together. I think that's when I first got to know you. 
Yes. And I always looked up to you, Doug, and still do physically because you're not just because you're taller, but you were the president that preceded me. And whenever we go back to SMA meetings, there's a ceremony that the past presidents passed the gavel and you're always standing on my left and you always pass me the gavel. And you, you, um, you taught me a lot while you were there. I always knew you were from the town of Oakville. But being the dumb American that I am, I'd never quite like understood exactly where that was. It is located west of Toronto, about an hour's drive. How did Oakville get its name? Well, uh, it's a municipality named after a tree, the Quercus oak. And it was the predominant species of the forest when the Europeans came to settle in this in in the 1700s 1800s looking for not only a timber for a pine for the king's navy but also to blossom a local timber trade and so the the pine and oaks were essentially cleared from the region to sustain those industries that that um, supported villages and hamlets that started popping up along the north shores of uh, Lake Ontario Right. And, and conveniently, they could put them, put the logs on a ship and That's send right. them back to England. That's right. Down the, the Lake Ontario, down the St. Lawrence River out into to the Atlantic Ocean it was named after the, the, the predominant deciduous species in the region, which was uh, red and white oaks. So we're going to be talking about the Bronte oak, which is a white oak that dates before the founding of Oakville. And the area was logged. Why do you think this tree was left? Any idea? It would be pure speculation on my part, Doug. As I understand the some of the background, some of the history that I learned from this story behind this tree is that a settler was granted a tract of approximately 315 acres in and around that region where the, the, the oak tree today is located. And he was a prominent member of that milling or logging community that we just talked about and he was he was a a sawyer and perhaps his farm boundary was situated somewhat in and around proximity to where that tree was a lot of trees often were cleared in this case for logging but where they served a practical purpose perhaps marked a prominent spot or a corner boundary property boundary or perhaps that's why it was spared the the axe and did the highway or did the road always come right by the tree? Well, that highway that is part and parcel of this story, it was a provincial highway, uh, although of only two lanes at the, for many years. You know, prior to any so-called highways, there was a stagecoach to support this logging industry or uh, timber industry, as we called it at the beginning of our conversation. They were there were hamlets that were dotted, you know, just speckle, specks within the wilderness not connected and isolated, hugging the shores of the North shores of Lake Ontario and perhaps moving inland along some of the river systems because there are some, a few prominent rivers that drain into Lake Ontario that move back into the into the hinterland. And these isolated, unconnected communities ultimately in the early 1800s, as I understand, started to be connected and they were there was a prominent stagecoach run between muddy York and, a community farther west of Oakville, which is now the city of Hamilton. Today's highways were former stagecoach runs. Ultimately, it became more, you know, as the automobile 
was rolled out in the early 1900s. It became a, a road and, and progressed as the volume of traffic gradually increased to its status today. So maybe that's why it was saved early on, because there was a stagecoach road, or it was a passageway, and it was not in the middle of a field. It didn't affect agriculture. It provided some shade and wayfinding. That's a reasonable proposition. Which is the opposite of its later troubles, but we'll get to that. You told me about when you first learned about the Bronte Oak as a young urban forester in Oakville. Could you describe that day, and who did you meet? Yes, I'd love to, because it's, even though it was a long time ago, as I said, I was the forester there for some 30 years. That began, my career began there in the late 1980s. I thought about it this morning prior to this interview, and I I drew in my breath. That's almost 40 years ago, Doug. It was a long time ago. But it, when I moved into the area, my boss at the time encouraged me to get to know certain individuals as part of my introduction to the to the community. I was new. I was a young, impressionable urban forester in my in my 20s. And he encouraged me to get to know the personalities in the in the area. And one of the individuals that he whose name he he dropped was a fellow by the name of Dr. George Aitkins. And but left it up to me to make the contact. So one day I I called up this gentleman and he very graciously received me. And I'll never forget that afternoon I spent. It, it remains with me today as 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 an, as an example of a, of an outstanding gentleman that and a generous, uh, warm gentleman and a very uh, knowledgeable gentleman and one who whose name is linked to this tree. Dr. George Aitken at that time, and this is probably in the late 1980s, Doug, he was a, at that time in the late 80s, he was a retired agronomist, field of agricultural science. And he happened to live on the property directly across the road, Brawny Road, from what is today called the Brawny White Oak Tree. Right, from our tree. From our tree. He could see it from his study. His house remains there today. And it's a beautiful, I'd say Victorian style, three three story home with gables and decorative architecture and the large wraparound porch. Just something that would strike you out of maybe Anna Green Gables as a beautiful country home. So I called him up and he and asked if I could come over to see him. And he very graciously said yes. And as we set up this a date where he would he entertained me. And then I came up the driveway. He welcomed me into his home and sat me down in this beautiful wood paneled study for the afternoon. And we enjoyed a wonderful conversation. And then the conversation turned to the brawny white oak tree. And he was very much in tune with this tree and loved this tree. And I, I credit Dr. Aikens, Dr. George Aikens, who is since deceased, as a prominent person who was involved in saving this tree from destruction. But there's at least three threats to this tree. Before I continue with the eight, I'll just name them. The first threat that I'm aware of was a hydro line. The second threat was a water line. And the third threat was a highway expansion. So a hydro line, a water line, and a highway expansion. And Dr. Aitken was prominent in saving the tree from the first threat, being the hydro line. That was in the 1970s? 
that was in the 1970s. And what Dr. Aiken, he brought out a scrapbook and showed me clip newspaper clippings of the incident that he was prominent in. According to Dr. Aitken, his story goes something like this, that he became aware that the uh, at the time that tree, it was owned by the Ontario government. It was a highway, a provincial highway. The above ground hydro utility that would have been located on a provincial highway would be our provincial utility called at that time, Ontario Hydro. Ontario Hydro is a massive hydro utility that is a distribution and transmission and generation company that supplies power, electrical power to the millions of Ontario residents. So they're a very powerful organization. And they had planned a, a expansion of their above ground hydro pole line. And by expansion, I mean, they probably meant that they were going to uh, increase the height of the hydro poles and the width, the span of the hydro poles. So it's going to make make them it taller and bigger overall, taller and, and, and fatter, if you will. And so that hydro line happened to be located on the same side of Brawny Road as the Brawny Oak Tree. They don't want trees anywhere near these lines. Right. During storms, most likely they're going to be doing some clearing and Dr. Aiken saw this coming. Exactly. They're going to be doing a lot of clearing. And so Dr. Aiken, as a concerned citizen, somehow became aware of this proposal and ultimately, uh, he objected to the proposed design because he quite correctly saw that it would hammer out a ghastly proportion of the crown of this oak tree, rendering it perhaps perhaps a fatal uh, volume. Right. This 200-year-old tree he sees out of his living room window and his porch. Exactly. And so ultimately, he told me he ended up petitioning the most senior uh, provincial bureaucrat at that time, which would have been the Minister of Transportation. And this is so we're talking about a cabinet level position. And he wrote to the Minister of Transportation, I believe at that time, the gentleman's name was uh, James Snow. Uh, we've we since have some parkways in the re greater Toronto area named after him. And James Snow may never have even ventured out to Oakville to, to see said tree. But Dr. Aikens captured James Snow's attention. And through his efforts of writing to James Snow and documenting, at that time, it was a prominent tree in its own right, because in the, even in the 70s, it would have been pushing, um, it would have been a massive in girth. It's some, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching out my arms beyond as wide as they can. And, and that's a span of, of, of at least four or five feet. And it's a massive tree that uh, probably would take I, I could imagine three or five people holding hands to gather around that tree. It's massive in girth. Its, it's, it's impact on the landscape was very prominent even then. And Dr. Aiken successfully convinced the Minister of Transportation to intervene. And like I said, you have to appreciate Ontario Hydro is a massive today multi-billion dollar corporation enough said, it's just a massive corporation. And so to have changes made in a plan that was likely already approved and paid for wouldn't have been easy to do. It was almost a David and Goliath story because it was basically Dr. Aitken taking on a crown corporation and the provincial government. Dr. Atkins or Aitkins may have been David, but he was a David well-versed in the skills of PR. In fact, George Aitkins was a radio personality 
From 1955 to 1980, he was the farm commentator for CBC Radio and Television out of Toronto. He knew how to reach the right people and how to tell a convincing story. The threat to the Bronte Oak was featured in the Oakville Beaver, then the Toronto Telegram, with photos of Dr. Aiken standing next to the tree. Letters of support came in from professors at the University of Toronto and elsewhere. So, with his public campaign and the disarming charm that John McNeil later experienced firsthand in his study, I imagine Dr. Aitkins had the Minister of Transportation in his hands. And so Dr. Aitken got the minister to intervene, get the engineering plans amended, and the line essentially zigzags around the tree, untouched. And I'm sure Hydro probably had fit saying, you can't take a transmission line and span it over a highway like this. And therefore, none of the branches of the tree were touched. What did he say? What did he, why did they listen to him? Was it just force of personality? Well, Dr. Aitken, as I said, was a retired agronomist. He was a scientist, a professional person, and was able, I think, to give somewhat knowledgeably, even though he wasn't, his background wasn't in arboriculture, urban forestry, reading between the lines somewhat, probably gave a synopsis of the benefits of the, of the tree, at least in terms of the, you know, the basic ecology. And he recognized the value of trees in uh, water conservation, soil conservation, as well as cleaning the air and cooling the air and stabilizing the soil. So you mentioned then a second controversy regarding this tree. When was that? Well, this, this Doug, I I'd neglected to or forgot to talk to you about, and it was brought to my attention by Pete Williams, the fellow, the forester that I'm encouraging you to make contact in. He's an old friend of mine. It was just a few years before 2006, there was a second, what I'll call the second threat that I'm aware of, and that's the, un, the water line. And it wasn't just any water line. They're talking about a massive aqueduct. More electricity, more water, and bigger roads. The wheels of progress along Bronte Road may have been slow in the stagecoach days, but they were turning rather quickly by the beginning of the 21st century. Does progress have to mean fewer trees? We're going to take a break here. When we come back, the utility projects keep coming and the stakes get higher for the Bronte Oak. Living this close to the road You'll question your vulnerability Got the curtains closed And there's nothing for those bull coyotes to see Just an airplane in the sky that I hear High up the chimney in the lone to be but it was um a two, about a two meter diameter pipe that went from lake ontario to a reservoir just south of the town of milton um, all along the bronte road pete williams is a consulting arborist and principal of williams and associates forestry consulting in 2002 a large aqueduct project was being planned by the regional municipality to serve the growing population of Oakville and nearby towns. Pete was hired to evaluate all the trees along several kilometers of the aqueduct's proposed path to determine which could be retained. 
When he got to the Bronte Oak, a neighbor spoke up about its protection once again. It was George Aikens, 30 years after the hydroelectric affair. Pete was drawn into his vortex. I was hired by, I believe it was a landscape architect who was working for either the building contractor or one of the other subconsultants. So I can't even remember who the primary consultant was, and I could not find the file. So anyway, I was out there doing, and I was asked to meet with George Atkins, who was a famous radio, well, among certain circles, a famous radio host who hosted the Developing Countries Farm Radio Network. And I knew of him as a radio show, so he came across the street, and he, he this is one of his causes, was this tree. And so we stood there, and while I was evaluating and talked about it all, it was very interesting. And there was a big scar at the base of this tree. It was on the west side, maybe, of, of the old road, it was maybe... 100 feet or 120 feet from the road. And uh, there's a big scar on it. Maybe it wasn't that far. I, I, it, you know, I'm old now, so I forget things, but. It was close enough. It was it was going to be disturbed significantly. Um, and so there was a scar at the base of it. And so George and I were talking. I said, well, it seems pretty healthy tree, except for this. He goes, well, that's just truck ran into it. So wow. that was from that was I think the scar is pretty much healed over. So we looked at the tree and and the funny thing was is I, I called it a burrow because I moved here from East Tennessee and I know a lot what white oak looks like. But down there the trees, um the white oak does quite better and has long white plates in it. And around here on it's at the edge of its range and it, not that many of them have those bark characteristics that white oak does, and that's really you know, if I'm just looking at trees, that's how I gauge them. Most uh, white oaks, anyway, because just bark is very distinctive. So I, I was called it a bur oak because it was all broken up. And uh, when George received my report, he says that it's not a bur oak; it's a white oak. So I lost some credibility there. But <laughs> so I went by again. I looked way up at the top between a couple of the branches. There was some of that smooth plates. But and I said, well, George, that's fine, but it won't make any difference in the report except for the spelling. Right. Sounds like he knew everything about that tree. Oh, it was a mission. It was right across the road. He had a really nice woodlot that was just on the other side of the road. And he'd lived there for 20, 30 years. It was a bit of a mission with him. They were considering tunneling under the tree. And they wanted to know, the question was, would that affect the tree? How far down below the tree would they tunnel? Or were they proposing to tunnel? The pipe pipe is two meters across. So... (laughs) It's just a big pipe. So I was kind of uh, scratching my head over this. And then I, I took my soil logger with me because I, I knew the area fairly well. And that in that area, is a, it's right at the top of the the old um, Iroquois Lake, Glacial Lake Iroquois, and ba- uh, top of bank. So it, it, it was really suspicious. And there's a lot of clayey soils in the area, but then you get a lot of other material deposited on top of it. So anyway, I took my auger with me, and the tree was doing quite well. And... Uh, except for the scar. And so I augered down and there was about a meter less, you know, somewhere between two and three feet of sand over the clay. Gotcha. Which explained why the tree was doing so well, because, you know, it's a perched water table with a lot of rooting space. And, and at that point, the tree could put, send its roots anywhere because the road was some distance away and it was just an old farmhouse next to it. And it had, it could take advantage of all that water. Oh yeah, because you know, and and it had decent drainage, so it was really a quite a good site quality uh, for for white oak or almost any tree. Right, yeah. but but not necessarily for tunneling. Well, actually, what I told them is, I said if they could, and 
what happens in Oakville is this: there's this red clay that's either a, a, a till deposited by the glaciers or it's weathered in place from a, a, a shale formation. And then there's the shale below it. So, which you can actually dig through with a backhoe if you're digging something. Pete isn't only a forester. He has a master's degree in physiography, which is a branch of geology that investigates the surface features of the earth, including soils, geological movements, weather, and other factors. Adding to his knowledge of trees, this unique background meant that Pete was the right person at the right time to propose a lifeline for the old tree. I said, well, you know, here's the deal. I said, if you can get if you can get the pipe below a meter so that the pipe is within that clay zone, it won't affect the tree. And that's what they did. And it there was no visible, no visible effect of it. So they tunneled from about 70 meters on or about 100 feet on one side to 100 or 150 feet on each side of it. Wow. Sort of like a dip. Well, the pipe, I'm not sure if how much it dipped because I wasn't looking at the engineering drawings or anything. What what they did is they excavated up to 150 feet at the tree and then then tunneled across. Ex, you know, just putting the clay in from the or the pipe in from the surface would have been, you know, I don't know. I don't cost these things out pretty cheap because it's just the excavator time. But tunneling, they said just that the tunneling itself would have cost eighty or a hundred thousand dollars or something. And I said, well, that's you know, great. It's good to keep the tree. It's nice to have big trees. I said, well, what about that other one? And they said, well, that one's, that one's going. <clears throat> so that was the end of it. Now, was the tree on their radar already before you brought it to their attention? Oh, I didn't bring it to their attention. I was asked okay. to look at it. George had already been on it. It was it was a part of the negotiation. And I'm sure, like I said, George Atkins had something to do with uh, calling attention to it with the contract, you know, because right. of the construction project. This time, he didn't need a PR campaign but he did need to speak up to keep the tree on the radar. Thankfully, Pete was on the job working with other talented engineers. It was a testament to their influence that they convinced a sensitive regional water utility to spend significant change to tunnel under the 200-year-old tree. Eighty dollars to $100,000 is nothing to sneeze at. But soon after came the biggest capital project of all, and it would take more than just Dr. Aitkins to keep the Bronte Oak from coming down. This wasn't over. This time, it was a highway project, and you don't mess with the needs of the automobile. Or do you? Bronte Road was to be expanded from two lanes to four, and a report for the project stated the beloved tree would not survive and should be removed. I spoke with longtime council member Alan Elgar, who was in office back in 2006. He questioned the report, and a fight was brewing. How did you first become aware of the Bronte Oak and its importance? Um, well, actually, I, I'm, I'm from a rural area myself, and uh, I, I just always noticed the old oak tree. I did not realize it was under threat until after when I was on council, when they talked about, of course, urbanization, widening of roads for traffic to flow better. When we received a re report saying that the tree only had a 10% chance of survival if, in fact, the tree was left there and the road went around the tree. And, of course, on anything, you know, you do the environmental assessment to find out all this information. And we had a consulting company who put the report together, which went to council, 
which pointed out that this tree has lived almost you know 250 years and it's only got a 10% chance of survival for a few more years. Therefore, only a 10% ch chance this tree will sur will survive. And very I didn't upsetting. Like very upsetting, but you know something, what are you going to do? But I was lucky enough to find another uh, person, uh, Jack Radecki from the uh, city of Toronto, who also was uh, an arborist and in charge of the trees in Toronto at the time. He came out, he had excited him and two others to come out and have a look at the tree. And like, we couldn't have picked a colder day in February. <laughs> <laughs> That's always how it works. Oh, it was brutal. So he came out and they stood and they looked at the tree and they told me, I'd really like to see the report you're referring to. So I said, well, you, you know, I, I had it with me. I care that kind of stuff when I was meeting with them. So I had it with me. And they said, that's the consultant's report. That's not the arborist report. And like, you know, here, here I am thinking, well, I don't, it's the report. And they said, no, can you please get me the arborist report? Which they did not include in the other report? No, they summarized it. So anyway, they went back to the region and they said, oh, we'll try and get that for you. In the meantime, I already called, I found out the company that did it out of Guelph, Abood and Associates. And I had the report which stated that tree has a 90% chance of survival indefinitely, even with the roads going, if the roads go around the tree. Conditional on if the road was adjusted around the tree. Correct. Yes. But in the other report, the consultant's report, it wouldn't matter what they did. It, you know, there's very 10% chance it's going to survive versus the actual arbor saying 90% chance. So that's when the fun began. Uh, <laughs> I see. What did you do next? Well, the next thing was, well, we tried to, you know, stir up interest and we got it to the town. We're asked the you know, region to reconsider some of the uh, portion of the environmental assessment. Uh, which they did. Uh, we got enough votes on council to do that. And that's when he brought in Joyce Brunel to testify on the Bronte Oaks behalf. But you also have an 87-year-old woman named Joyce Brunel who came and spoke at the region. And a very colorful speech she gave to the region. Uh, she, and uh, she was the one that convinced the councillors. How did she get involved? She... Got it. She, I sent out something about the, the oak tree, and she responded back to me and said, what you're trying to do, I don't know you, but what you're trying to do, I really like, and I like what you're trying to do. So I said to her, uh, Ms. Burnell, I think you're probably the only person that can really save this tree, because if you would come and speak at regional council, I think they will at least listen to you. And uh, she, she was a, uh, had been a high a teacher all of her life, a school teacher. And she said, I'll do that. So that's wonderful. She did. Well, it, was, it, was, it was unbelievably beautiful. When she spoke, who was going to argue with an 87 year old woman that was so passionate? And she broke into a song singing, Save Our Oak, God Save Our Great Oak Tree, and everything. What was her general message? That we have to save this tree. It's an important tree, it's historic. There's hardly any left in Oakville at all. They've all been cut down for massive ship, you know, years and years ago. It was here seven and started. It was a seedling in 1760, and there's no way this tree hat should be cut. We have to save it. But there was a catch. Well, then they came back with, if you want to save the tree, 
you have to raise $343,000. And that was at a, at a June meeting in 2006. That was also an election year for all municipal and regional councilors, by the way. <laughs> so regional council said, we will give you until the end of December to raise 343000 because we weren't going to put it on the, on the taxpayer. That's a very precise number. Very precise, yes. Wasn't it, though? Right? <laughs> very precise. <laughs> and you're starting at base zero. They didn't really think that that was possible, did they? Of course not. Like, come on, you know, an 87-year-old woman, what's she going to do? Raise 10000 or, you know, after everybody comes through? There's something rotten about that. Well, it happened, yes, but it, that's it. Hey, that was the, some of the counselors were laughing at that around the regional meeting. Yeah, well, they messed with the wrong 87-year-old lady. When we come back from a short break, we'll learn what happened next. You're listening to This Old Tree. After she spoke and after that public meeting, what changed? What really changed was everybody that engaged, uh, not just around Oakville, but I'm talking in other countries also, sending emails of support, how important trees were to them. And like it was, it was different countries across the world. The fundraising had begun and the story hit the national media. Letters of support and donations poured in, including from one royal tree lover across the Atlantic. And then also uh, Prince Charles, who is now the king, king, but uh, sent a letter and uh, from, his, from Clarence House saying that he felt that the tree should be protected also. Amazing. The Prince of Wales was indeed very concerned to, to hear about the threat to one of the few remaining trees at Oakville. So he heard about it through the news? He heard about it through a lady who lived in Toronto, but also had knew uh, Prince Charles. So she, right, she sent him a fax, and that was back in October the 19th, 2006. Wow, I remember faxes. <laughs> We're getting older. And she had a direct fax line to Prince Charles. Yes, she did. Yeah. And she took the time to do it. And they, they sent, sent back a, a hard copy letter with the Clarence House logo on it. Where did the donations come from? All over? Well, yes. We had school kids selling oak leaves. We had a, a, a jewelry store downtown Oakville who made gold or silver acorns, which they were selling and given the proceeds to this fund. We had a Trafalgar Brewing Company in Oakville which was giving, uh, for every beer sold of the great white oak beer, 
uh, with the label of the tree and everything. They get a buck for every every one. Um, and it, it, and then we also had one donor who herself gave one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! Wow! Anonymously. Yes, it was anonymous at the time. Yes, it was. She said she, she first. She said I will. I will match every whatever you give, and it was still a little low. And she she wrote out a check for one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Incredible! And so she was. That was sort of the keystone donation. That was absolutely. We had a, a singer called Sarah Harmer. I'm not sure if you've heard of her down there, but she's a pretty famous singer. She put on a benefit concert for us for free. Every every dollar of the proceeds went to saving the oak tree. This was during that effort, that sort of nine month effort. Yep, this was during the this was doing during the effort, and she, she every 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 dollar she made at that concert. But we had that through the Oakville. I set that up through the Oakville Art Center, so the money all went through the Oakville Art Center to buy your tickets. So everything, you know, it was all you know very straightforward. But she, not one dollar went to her. She is one good person, and you know something from then on. We knew we could do it. We figured we were we were around two hundred and I think around two hundred and seventy thousand dollars of the three of the three forty three, and then the the province, the the region, and the and the town of Oakville threw in the rest to make it work. Not everyone was pleased that the city was spending this money to save a single tree, based on an article in the National Post in January two thousand and seven entitled. Not all of Oakville rooting for old tree, said one constituent. Realistically, this seems to have more emotional weight than any sort of logical weight, because it is going to be in the middle of a four-lane highway. Nobody even thought to talk to the voters. But it seems most people thought differently. This was a fast-moving train, and nothing was going to get in the way of saving the Bronte Oak. To preservationists, the effort touched something deep inside. They rerouted the highway around the tree, giving it ample room, forming that island I first told you about. Councilman Elgar spreads the praise. They went around the tree, and that tree's still very much alive today. They they, like they got the road up now, nicely around the tree. Whatever it took, whatever it was, that was their number, and uh, the public. As it, it's the public street, it's not the it's not the, it's the people's tree, as, as Joyce Burnell said. And it was Renee Sandalowski was another councillor on on council at the time, who was a spark plug behind it too, a true a true spark plug. She came to speak to council, and and Jim Young, another person behind the scenes, somewhat. Uh, who really supported Joyce Burnell, who was the, 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 the fire. Without Joyce, I don't know whether regional council would have even given a, you know, an, an extra six months to say, get, raise, raise the money. So, One really cool thing is that I got a chance to talk to Sarah Harmer about the benefit concert she did with Obiju and chat about environmental activism. She was kind enough to come on the show. I asked her how she first heard about the effort to save the old oak tree. I think it may have been through Alan Elgar, the counselor, um, and it could have been through the media. I'm not quite sure. I, I think I had read about Joyce Burnell, who was the um, 
older citizen who had really spearheaded things at the council meeting and got a, I think a six month window for the community to raise that money. And, and so I think I must've, my mom might've told me about it, or I, I heard it about it in the media or Alan, I can't quite remember, but it, it came to my attention for sure. And do you live nearby? Are you, um, where are you? Yeah, I know I live in Kingston, Ontario, which is on the east end of Lake Ontario. And Oakville is kind of at the west end of the lake. They're about three hours apart. But I grew up near Oakville um, in North Burlington. So I was spending a lot of time there um, with my family and working on other environmental issues. It's a very populated area. So it has a lot of pressures on it as far as you know, protecting the natural landscape is vulnerable there. So I'd been working on a a big gravel mining issue. So I had been spending a lot of time in the area, but I live three hours away. Is that the Niagara escarpment? Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah, I know you were involved in that, bringing attention to that issue. Could you describe it a little bit? Oh, I would love to. Yeah, the Niagara Escarpment is a big ridge corridor. It runs for 700 or more kilometers from Niagara Falls all the way up. It kind of peters out around Chicago, so it actually goes into the States as well. It's kind of been historically hard to develop because it is a big rocky cliff face and a, a escarpment corridor. And so it's got something like, I don't know how many, a large percentage of our endangered and threatened species. It's got ancient forests, white cedars that are older than any other tree east of the Rocky Mountains. You know, it's really ancient ecosystems up there. And it's also very coveted by the gravel mining industry because the rock is close to the surface. So it's a big conflict of, and it's close to market. So um, I was working and M, unfortunately, it's kind of a zombie quarry application. So we defeated it after eight years of building the science and fighting at a big hearing. Now you started a nonprofit? Yeah, we started a community group called Pearl Protecting Escarpment Rural Land, which was just a bunch of volunteers who had never really done that kind of work before. Just like there are so many community groups around the world, uh, trying to figure out how decisions get made and trying to be involved. And so the quarry was dismissed by the province. They found it to be a bad idea for the endangered species and the water. And unfortunately, only six years or so after that decision, Lafarge, the company, uh, has come back and they're trying again. They've reapplied for some of the exact same land. So right now we're back in the same uh, bad, bad nightmare of, of once again, having to raise all the money and the science and relitigate the whole Lincoln thing. I know you wrote a, a song called Escarpment Blues, which is a great song, but now you're going to have to write another song. I know that's it. Uh, that's <laughs> it. Escarpment Blues times two. Right, right. But Sarah also found time to support the Bronte Oak. One little thing, you know, at the time when it came to my attention, um, my, my album, I'm a mountain was, was nominated for a Polaris award, which is a, a music award in Canada and the award winnings. If you won the award, it was a $20,000 prize. And I was interviewed and asked what I would do if I won, what I would do with that $20,000. And I said a little bit flippantly, but I kind of said, I said, I would donate it to the, the white Oak in Oakville. And Another, a, a guy who was in an, a band called Obiju, who was also nominated for the Polaris Award, read that interview and said, I know that tree. 
my grandfather, George Atkins, taught me how to play chess under that tree. Wow. And contacted me and said, we should do something. And I said, yeah, let's do a show. His name keeps coming up, George Atkins. Well, he, he came to the show, which we did. We, we put on a fundraiser concert in the afternoon, right by the tree at the regional kind of auditorium. It was like in a school gym kind of, kind of vibe. And George Atkins was there. I hadn't met him, but my mom and dad were there as well. And my dad told me about being, a, my dad's in his 90s now, but he was a farmer. And he said, you know, at lunchtime, he and his brothers would come in and listen to CBC Farm Radio at their lunch hour. And it would be George Atkins, who was a broadcaster uh, about f- uh, farming um, know-how. And so I got to meet him that day and he, yeah, he was Ryan Carley's um, grandfather and he had, I think, owned the land that the, the region had at one point expropriated, but he had made a deal with them back in the seventies, as far as I understand, to always protect this ancient tree. That's fantastic. It's a small world, right? It, yeah. Canada is a huge country, but it's a small population. So there often is a lot of crossover. Who performed at the concert? Uh, so Obiju was uh, the first band, um, O-H-B-I-J-O-U, um, and then myself and my band. And so we kind of did a stripped down thing because it was in a, a gym. You know, I don't know if we had any lights. It was it was pretty modest production, but it was a great crowd. And then after the show, Um, I was playing with my friend Spencer Evans, who plays clarinet and piano, and he's a real Pied Piper, and he led everyone out (laughs) playing his clarinet. He led everyone out from the the regional hall there to the tree, and we all did a – someone was up from the local paper in a cherry picker, and they did a photo of us all. I love it. I'll have to find that photo. Yes, it was the Oakville Beaver, I believe, is the name of the paper. Have you ever written a song about a tree? That's a good question. I don't think I have. And man, I'm a huge, <laughs> I'm a huge tree hugger. I love, <laughs> I love planting them. I love uh, admiring them. Why are trees important to you? They're, they're other beings, you know, they're so, uh, I mean, I grew up on a big farm, on on an old farm, and so we have a lot of big maples, and you know, they're rooted in time. They, they, I'm a nostalgic person, I think, by nature, so I love to imagine kind of what things were like a hundred years ago, and you know, and when you're next to an old tree, you can feel that it it has a sense of that. But you know, it's one of those things at the time that it was very daunting. The amount of money, I think, we raised about twelve thousand dollars at our concert. Fantastic. Bit of a drop in the bucket next to 343, but you just never know. Well, you raised awareness, so you don't really know how much you raised because of the concert, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it, it's you don't know when you're looking at it from the other side, and it's it's a joy now. I drive by it when like regularly. It's kind of a slightly out of my way to get up to my folks, but I often make that route just to give it a give it a hello. I'm looking at it right now uh, because I have a, a, a pencil drawing of it here in my kitchen, a woman um, named Betty Goodfellow, I think it was. I, her name was, uh, and she, she, as part of the fundraiser, she had done a, 
a sketch of it without its leaves, a wintertime sketch. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Doug, and and, I look forward to listening to the final product. And good luck with with preserving the Niagara Escarpment. Thank you very much. We need a lot of luck. I also asked my other guests why they thought the Bronte Oak has been so important to the people of Oakville and the surrounding area all these years. I think the tree is a symbol of the town's spirit, and it, it is a, a strongly held spirit, and I believe a sincere spirit. There's a respect for the urban forest and things uh, natural held by the majority of the citizens of Oakville. Do you think there's anything distinctly Canadian about this story of the Bronte Oak surviving all these threats? Well, no blood was shed. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was violent. In that sense, it probably was a polite discussion, <laughs> even though there were a few maybe tempers raised at times. Let's say it was a polite debate. That's probably uniquely Canadian. What do you think about when you drive by the Bronte Oak now? What comes to mind? First off, just a sense of pride. There's a sense of pride for having been part of that and helped to, in some way, small way, contribute towards building that and sustaining that. And I also think of Dr. Aitkins. I suspect there's a few individuals um, that that were its champion, um, like like George Atkins, for example. I know he was very. Then that was before it was really popular to do that kind of. You know, like wasn't as rah-rah as it is these days. So he was uh, successful in drawing attention to it and rallying the, you know, some support. And I imagine Alan Elgar was involved in it as well. But I mean, it took somebody people to like rattle a couple of doors to actually draw the attention to it. And then more people joined in on it. And what do you think of when you drive by it now? I go, nice looking tree. It's lucky. <laughs> it's, it's a lucky one, you know, because like I said, there if you're rolling the dice, you know, they all had to fall in its favor for it to stay. I think probably one of the reasons, because where, where it is situated, where people drive by it every day. And it's now it's almost like it's like a monument because it's kind of like a landmark in that area, for sure. In my life, I've never seen so many engaged people from all, all, all aspects of life. What goes through your mind when you drive by the tree now? I just uh, I just uh, smile when I when I see it looking at me. <laughs> My next concern is Bronte Road widening from two lanes on each side to three lanes on each side. That's coming up. Yes, it is, and that's a that's another concern I have going forward with this tree. I can honestly say there's no construction damage or danger that's going to happen to this tree. I I I think I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> Like we need people to stand up because there's remember one of the uh, another uh, York University professor who said, you know, people should not live above the tree line. He had a write up. and He said, if you're above the tree line by very much, you're not as associated with the ground and people should stay, you know, grounded. Was it worth three hundred and forty three thousand dollars to save the Bronte oak tree? I think so, but I'm biased. Prince Charles thought so, and Sarah Harmer thought so. Most importantly, the people of Oakville felt it was important. The tree is a link to the past, a living piece of environmental heritage. To them, it is a symbol that suggests we can save the world if we try. Music
I'd like to thank my wonderful guests, John McNeil, Pete Williams, Alan Elgar, and Sarah Harmer. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show once again. You can find links and credits in the show notes, and I'll be posting photos on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time. I'm Doug Still, and this has been This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Cause I